Daily Sports Report here on 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll leave you with a good night and a go blue. Pandora's box, a box of chocolates Would I know To stay away What's that? Pandora's box, a box of chocolates Would I eat them anyway? Cause every time I have half a mind to leave you, babe That means I have half a mind to stay it's Pandora's Lunchbox on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Good evening, this is Mike, and Pandora's Lunchbox is a show about food and culture every Thursday evening at 6.30. Thank you, Arwolf, for shitting in for the last couple of weeks while I mended my brokenness, sniffles, all of that sort of thing. It was very, very sad, very, very sad. But I'm back and alive, and it's raining a lot, and there's a flood watch in Washtenaw County, which is, in effect, now through Friday morning. It's actually for all of southeast Michigan. There are flood warnings in other parts of the states. state. It's just plain wet. It's a wonderful day to be fish or to be beer. And so, as you would expect, of course, logically, we're going to talk about fish and beer. But raining fish, that's another story. According to Weather Underground's Dr. Greg Forbes, reports of fish raining from the sky date back to at least 200 B.C. in Greece. Forbes says that tornadoes and water spouts are the most likely causes for those ancient reports of fish and other small animals falling from the sky. So look out, wear a hat. The Library of Congress says on October 23, 1947, A.D. Bajkov, a biologist with the Louisiana Department of Wildlife, was eating breakfast at a restaurant in Marksville, Louisiana, when the waitress told him and his wife that fish were falling from the sky, which probably made him look up from his coffee. There were spots on Main Street in the vicinity of the bank, a half block from the restaurant, averaging one fish per square yard. Automobiles and trucks were running over them. Fish also fell on the roofs of houses. I personally collected from Main Street and several yards on Monroe Street a large jar of perfect specimens and preserved them in formalin mm-mm, in order to distribute them among various museums. So there is no fish falling from the sky warning at the moment, but there is a flood watch. So get those buckets ready, and uh, why don't you uh, look skyward? Well, I called in sick today. I took off tomorrow and the next day.
some indigenous Ann Arbor music for you. Frank Allison and the Odd Sox, Let's Go Fishing from that old chestnut hokey smoke. Ah, what an album. This is Pandora's Lunchbox. And speaking of fish, even far back, farther, farther, way farther back than at least 200 B.C. when fish fell from the sky in Greece, even farther back than 1947 when fish fell on the ground in Louisiana, there were fish. And did you know that? There is, in fact, a nice piece of news that just came out about the coelacanth, which people call the living fossil. And this is from The Independent in the U.K., the website of The Independent. <clears throat> says here, A deep-sea fish, which became known as a living fossil, has not changed in appearance since before the time of the dinosaurs, with the help of an extraordinary genome that is barely evolving. How extraordinary that it barely evolves. The study has found that the coelacanth, which lives in deep-sea caves off the coast of Africa, was once known only from its fossils and so was thought to have gone extinct at least 70 million years ago until a recently dead specimen was discovered by South African fishermen in 1938. It's one of the few species to have hardly changed in tens of millions of years, and now scientists believe this physical stability is mirrored in the coelacanth's genome the three billion letters of its DNA code. A research scientist at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard in Massachusetts said, We found that the genes overall are evolving significantly slower than in every other fish and land vertebrae that we looked at. It's the first time we've had a big enough gene set to really see it. Charles Darwin first coined the term living fossil to describe species that have endured unchanged due to limited competition with other animals. But the doctor in the study says the description is not always helpful because it suggests a relic from the past that has been brought back to life. But this is not a living fossil here. It's a living organism, did not live in a time bubble. It lives in our world. And coelacanths grow about four feet long and have conspicuously fleshy fins that resemble the limbs of four-legged land animals with backbones like frogs, lizards, and mammals. This and their ancient lineage suggested that they may be closely related to the first fish that made the evolutionary transition from sea to land. And why is this important? Because there are rivers flooding in Michigan, and you may see some fish evolving. It could happen. It may happen. Speaking of going all the way back to the beginning of time and species and earth, this message now from Mr. Douglas Adams. Chapter 23. It is an important and popular fact that things are not always what they seem. For instance, on the planet Earth, man had always assumed that he was more intelligent than dolphins because he had achieved so much. The wheel, New York, wars, and so on. Whilst all the dolphins had ever done was muck about in the water having a good time. But conversely, the dolphins had always believed that they were far more intelligent than man, for precisely the same reasons. Curiously enough, the dolphins had long known of the impending destruction of the planet Earth and had made many attempts to alert mankind to the danger, but most of their communications were misinterpreted as amusing attempts to punch footballs or whistle for titbits. So they eventually gave up and left the Earth by their own means, shortly before the Vogons arrived. The last ever dolphin message was misinterpreted as a surprisingly sophisticated attempt to do a double backward somersault through a hoop while whistling the star-spangled banner. But in fact, the message was this. So long, and thanks for all the fish. 
Thank you to The Divine Comedy there with a lovely tune by the name of The Seafood Song. Actually, it is a seafood song because there's only one. This is Pandora's Lunchbox. It's a show about food and culture and fish and beer because it's raining a lot and fish and beer love water. And there's lots of it. Here's some news from earlier this week. Lansing's Red Cedar River goes right through Michigan State University campus. And now you can fish on it. It was a place where in the 1960s it was not such a good place to fish. No, it was polluted. There were water quality issues from agricultural drainage. There was a lot of runoff, not such good stuff. But says a fellow from the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, the Red Cedar River in on the campus of Michigan State University is now fine for fishing. And so, in fact, they have stocked the fish earlier this week 
For the first time in nearly half a century, people will be encouraged to fish along a portion of the Red Cedar River. At a ceremony Monday near the campus's western edge, says Steve Carmody of Michigan Radio, MSU dignitaries, including Sparty, took turns dumping buckets of steelhead trout into the meandering Red Cedar River. If you're hoping to catch one of the steelhead, the fellow from the DNR says the fish dumped into the Red Cedar River this week won't stick around for long. They're going to swim downstream to Lake Michigan. A few of them will come back next year, but the majority will be back in two to three years. So, fish are back on campus. That's something that you don't hear so much at the University of Michigan campus. Fish are back on campus, but nevertheless, it is true. And speaking of fish, speaking of muskrats, we'll get to muskrats in just a moment. Wasn't that nice to hear a song just a moment ago about fish and drinking? Very, very refreshing. Speaking of refreshing and speaking of heading from mid-Michigan over to West Michigan, some news for small Michigan breweries. There are some lovely ones in Ann Arbor, some lovely ones all over the state. Small Michigan breweries that want to sell their beer in cans but are backing away because of the upfront costs of doing that will soon have another option. According to the Kalamazoo Gazette, Andrew McLean of Kalamazoo and Scott Richards of Traverse City are launching the state's first mobile canning line called Michigan Mobile Canning. And they expect to hit the road in June, or by June actually, maybe even sooner than June. McLean says they want to ensure that the state is a mecca for microbrewers. It's kind of like cocoa for, no, cuckoo for cocoa puffs, mecca for microbrewers. I'm all for that, especially if I've had a little bit of microbrew with my cocoa puffs. In the morning, they have a 16-foot box truck that is fitted to fill the cans at the brewery and then get out of there. They've invested more than $160,000 and expect to be able to fill 2 million to 2.5 million cans a year. The first client is going to be Right Brain Brewery in Traverse City. Now, we'll all say this together, Right Brain Brewery, Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, and Mecca for Microbrewers. There will be a test at the end of this program. Up oh, in 15 minutes, so you've only got so much time. So that's the news. We've got some more beer news, too, from West Michigan. The city of Zeeland is going to get its first brewery ever. The city just reversed its nearly 100-year-old alcohol ban in 2006. Garrett Ellison of MLive says this. Nate and Laura Gentry are a couple of Michigan Tech grads. They're busy renovating a 115-year-old building in the heart of downtown Zealand into a restaurant and a brew pub, brew pub called Triple Root. They've been Zealand residents for for the past eight years. They bought the building in February, and they've spent recent months helping convince city leaders to allow takeout alcohol sales at full-service restaurants. And that, that zoning change was green-lighted in March. So moving forward, Triple Root plans to brew on a seven-barrel system with three fermenters, and three serving tanks, and a partridge in a pear tree, and Mecca for microbrewers. Remember to say that over and over again five times, please. Speaking of breweries and brew, in Ann Arbor, some brew news. Bill's Beer Garden in Ann Arbor will open for the season on Thursday, May 2nd. That there is the new beer garden that's connected to downtown home and garden in Ann Arbor. Just opened in the fall for the first time, and it's opening up again on May 2nd, presuming there won't be a ton of rain like what we're getting right now. Let's take a moment now here. Speaking of brew and drinks and things, is another message from our sponsor, Douglas Adams. Chapter 2. Here's what the Encyclopedia Galactica has to say about alcohol. 
It says that alcohol is a colourless, volatile liquid formed by the fermentation of sugars, and also notes its intoxicating effect on certain carbon-based life forms. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy also mentions alcohol. It says that the best drink in existence is the pan-galactic gargle blaster. It says that the effect of drinking a pan-galactic gargle blaster is like having your brain smashed out by a slice of lemon wrapped around a large gold brick. The guide also tells you on which planets the best pan-galactic gargle blasters are mixed, how much you can expect to pay for one, and what voluntary organisations exist to help you rehabilitate afterwards. The guide even tells you how you can mix one yourself. Take the juice from one bottle of that old jank spirit, it says. Pour into it one measure of water from the seas of Santraginus V. Oh, that Santraginian seawater, it says. Oh, those Santraginian fish. Allow three cubes of Arcturan Megagin to melt into the mixture. It must be properly iced or the benzene is lost. Allow four litres of Phalian marsh gas to bubble through it, in memory of all those happy hikers who have died of pleasure in the marshes of Phalia. Over the back of a silver spoon float a measure of Quilactin hypermint extract, redolent of all the heady odours of the dark Quilactin zones, subtle, sweet and mystic. Drop in the tooth of an Algolian sun tiger, Watch it dissolve, spreading the fires of the Algolian suns deep into the heart of the drink. Sprinkle zamphor. Add an olive. Drink, but very carefully. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy sells rather better than the Encyclopedia Galactica. Kinder, kommt und seid gemütlich, jetzt ist es gerade so nett. Kinder, kommt und seid doch friedlich, danken könnt ihr euch im Bett. Ich hab noch das Geld für die Miete bei mir, der Hauswirt kann warten, Herr Ober, ein Bier. Erst trinken wir noch ein, erst trinken wir noch ein, und dann gehen wir noch nicht nach Hause. Erst trinken wir noch ein, erst trinken wir noch ein, und dann machen wir eine Pause. Und in der Pause, da essen wir ne Wurst, denn nach so ne Wurst kriegt man immer wieder so Dann trinken wir noch ein, dann trinken wir noch ein, und dann gehen wir noch nicht nach Hause. Bier her, Bier her, oder ich fall um. Kinder, ach, wie schön war's früher, da hat man doch noch gelebt. Heut kommt der Gerichtvollzieher, der blaue Vögelchen klebt. Doch schleppt er auf weg unser Prachtgrammophon, das Lied, worauf ankommt, das kennen wir ja schon. Jetzt trinken wir noch ein, jetzt trinken wir noch ein, und dann gehen wir noch nicht nach Hause. Jetzt trinken wir noch ein, jetzt trinken wir noch ein, und dann machen wir eine Pause. 
und in der Pause, da ist mir ne Wurst. Denn nach so einer Wurst kriegt man immer wieder durch. Hm. Dann trinken wir noch ein, dann trinken wir noch ein. Und dann gehen wir noch nicht nach Hause. Yeah. What he said. That was, let's have another beer, exclamation point. Actually, the word exclamation point is not spelled out in the title. The punctuation's there. It's up to you to list, lift your drink and say, exclamation point. You'll get looks, for sure. It's nine minutes before seven. It's Pandora's Lunchbox, a show about food also, yet, and culture. And coming up at seven, Arbolf will help us to face the music. In the meantime, it's raining a lot. There's a flood watch in Washtenaw County. And beer and fish love water. We know this. From Wikipedia says here, beer is one of the world's oldest prepared beverages, possibly dating back to the early Neolithic or 9500 B.C., when cereal was first farmed and is recorded in the written history of ancient Iraq and ancient Egypt. Archaeologists speculate that beer was instrumental in the formation of civilizations. The earliest known chemical evidence of barley beer dates to circa 3500 to 3100 B.C. from the site of Godin Tepe in the Zagros Mountains of western Iran. Some of humanity's earliest known writings refer to the production and distribution of beer. The Code of Hammurabi included laws regulating beer and beer parlors. And the Hymn to Ninkasi, a prayer to the Mesopotamian goddess of beer, served as both a prayer and as a method of remembering the recipe for beer in a culture with few literate people. So about Ninkasi, her father was Enki, the lord Nudimud, and her mother was Ninti, the queen of the Abzu. She's also one of the eight children created in order to heal one of the eight wounds that Enki receives. Furthermore, she is the goddess of alcohol. She was also born of sparkling fresh water. She is the goddess made to satisfy the desire and sate the heart, and she would prepare the beverage daily. So now, some history going way back. But here's some more history of a more dubious nature and a lot more recent, how the muskrat became a fish. Now, we know dolphins are fish, right? We heard about that a moment ago, and and people drink toasts to fish in the sea and the people who raise them and fish them. But from the Monroe Boat Club in Monroe, Michigan, in Lake Erie, here is how the muskrat became a fish. A legend persists in Monroe that local Catholics, forbidden to eat meat on Fridays, successfully petitioned the Pope in Rome to declare the muskrat to be a fish, since it seems to live mostly in or around water. The relatively inexpensive meat thus could provide greater variety in Friday fare without being a strain on the pocketbook. At a 1938 meeting of the Monroe Exchange Club, several members claimed the local arguments were powerful enough to gain a special dispensation from the ecclesiastical authorities to permit the eating of muskrat in the Monroe vicinity on Fridays or fast days right up to modern times. 
No papal document has yet come to light in support of this legend, but not for lack of believers. According to Boyaz Dansard, several of the French trappers here asked the priest whether muskrat was fish or not. The priest was frankly puzzled and called a town meeting where the biological classification of the muskrat was debated long and hotly. Finally, one respected elder rose in the meeting to declare, The rat, he live in water, he no animal. The rat, he walk on land, he no fish, he must be vegetable. This is very authentic, I think. A tradition in the Roe family states, that's R-E-A-U, that the practice dates from the winter of 1813. That's 200 years ago. Wow. When their family members were driven from their homes during the aftermath of the Battle of the River Raisin. Fleeing across the ice, they ended up on Guard Island in Maumee Bay. When Father Gabriel Richard found them huddled together in some native huts, they were starving and asked for a dispensation to eat muskrats on Friday. Father Richard granted their wish. Since then, settlers in the Bay Area have claimed the dispensation applied only to them, not the rest of the French of Monroe or Newport. In more recent times, one local priest, Father Lambert Lavoie, said he had been asked hundreds of times in the confessional whether muskrat and diving ducks could be eaten as fish. I'd never heard of a priest being asked about muskrat in a confessional before. While not claiming a dispensation for them, Father Lavoie simply asked if the person really believed it was fish or flesh. Those who considered it a fish were told they could eat it as such. And so from the Monroe Boat Club website, monroeboatclub.org, comes this fascinating piece of fact, how the muskrat became a fish. Monroe is where I also saw a polka mass once, which contained the lyric, Hey, hey, O blessed mother. This actually happened, and so I'm inclined to believe everything on this website. This is Pandora's Lunchbox. I've been Mike. Thank you for tuning in. Keep listening, and don't let that stop you from anything. Arwolf is going to help the face the, going to help us face the music the in just a moment. This is WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'll give you fish. Here's the B-52s to ride us out. Get your boats. It's raining.
Thanks, Mike. That was great. That was a rock band, wasn't it? Yes, the B-52s. Was that the B-52s? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. That was great. This is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Um, 88.3 is the frequency. My name is R. Wolf. R. Wolf, we're having a very nice rain. We had um, one hell of a lot of rain earlier today. Now it's just trickling down and the plants are all sitting up. And If you see any earthworms, get them out of trouble. Yeah, let's go. Time for Face the Music. This is the second of three projected programs using playlists composed of songs containing the word rhythm in the title. Much more exciting than that little formula might lead you to believe. Start with a record cut in 1924 by Paul Whiteman's orchestra. This is Fascinating Rhythm, which also happens to be more or less the theme song for tonight. That's by the Gershwin Brothers, Fascinating Rhythm. (laughs) 